It's been an amazing few weeks here with our uh, revival nights a couple weekends ago with Randy and Keith here. And last week, um, our baptism service together. Wasn't that amazing to be here together? And uh, today is, is another one that's going to be great. Uh, I'm really looking forward to um, this morning. Uh, mostly because I don't have to preach. That's what I'm really looking forward to. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're stepping into a different season as a church. And a number of people actually have come to me and to us privately with some prophetic words that actually align with that. That, like, what Jesus has been uh, building and rebuilding and, and kind of stirring in us over the last five years, we're actually beginning, we're at just the very beginning, we're beginning to walk into that. And we really feel that Jesus is walking with us and calling us into a new season as a church. And part of that is launching this week with our Freedom Session uh, ministry. And, you know, I became aware of this not that long ago, maybe about two years ago. And, um, like I've mentioned to you before, our staff all walked through this uh, earlier this year, from January till May kind of thing. And it was actually really powerful and really incredible. And the reason that we walked through it first is I really firmly believe I can't lead you into something that I haven't been willing to walk in myself. We're not into just passing along knowledge and information here. We're, we're into the formation of the Spirit in our lives into the likeness and character of Jesus. And so our staff walked through this and as we were walking through, I thought, man, it would be amazing to have a Ken, the guy who created this, like in our church and to, to kind of help us launch that. And uh, I was wrestling with that and I just sensed the Holy Spirit say, just like Andrew, you kind of like to uh, create things for yourself and you kind of like to blaze ahead sometimes and I want you just to wait on that. And so I just sort of put that on the shelf. And as we got closer to launching Freedom Sessions this coming week, we were ordering material from them and they reached out to us and said, hey, that's awesome you're doing this. Uh, Ken's gonna be in the area in October. Would you potentially like to have him come and speak? And so. I just sort of played it cool uh, via email, like, yeah, that would be all right to do that. Like, you know, I don't know. Um, but uh, so Ken is here this morning and it was totally like a God orchestrated thing. I didn't have to pull a bunch of strings behind the scenes and we're so thankful for that. I first heard Ken preach um, uh, several years ago when I was listening to a series on the book of Ephesians um, that a pastor in... Uh, the Lower Mainland was preaching, Mark Clark at Village Church, and I first heard Ken preaching there. He was on staff for quite a number of years there, right, as their executive pastor. And so I began to hear him talk about this thing, Freedom Session, as I listened to some of his messages. And then I started meeting other pastors who had been walking through it and walking with their churches through it. And um, 
and uh, started to become aware of the potential for a different kind of discipleship. And so Ken has graciously uh, agreed to be with us this weekend. I'm going to grab a microphone somewhere, yes, from here, and I'm gonna invite you to come up, Ken, with me, and uh, let's welcome him as he comes. I'm gonna pass this to you. All right. And uh, as we do that, we actually are gonna start with a little bit of a Q&A, and I'll let him get into more of his story if he's going to do that. But this sort of, this kind of way of discipling people is maybe new for a lot of you, and it was new for us a few years ago. And so I thought it would be great to just ask him a few specific questions about that. And one of the first ones that we get asked and that I don't even know, I had like somebody asked me this this week and I had like a 10 minute answer, which wasn't helpful for this one. But um, what actually is, and how would you define healing discipleship? All right, so healing discipleship is a term, it's simply it's a term that we coined to explain why and how emotional and relational healing needs to become a normative experience in the discipleship journey. So what churches typically do, uh, any church worth their salt is they're gonna have what we call entry-level events where you invite people to church. It could be a men's event, a youth event, a women's event, whatever it is, alpha, whatever it is. And then as soon as people start coming to the church, we, we draw a big circle and that's our congregation. And then we wanna put them in small groups so they're in relationship. And then what we wanna do is we wanna disciple them. And discipleship, we've typically defined over the years, uh, spiritual maturity and discipleship, we've defined really as knowledge. Bible knowledge, memorization, know your spiritual gifts, we've also defined it as serving and tithing and things like that. And so we, we, we wanna lead people to Jesus Christ because we believe that's critical. Then we wanna disciple them to become mature, spiritually maturity, but then when life falls apart, we take them out of small groups or discipleship track and we send them to our counseling ministries. Then they get well, and then we put them back in the discipling track. And so that's what we kind of, what, what we've been doing in the last years, and it dawned on me, um, I guess November, uh, November 29th, 2009. I was actually flying back from Toronto to Vancouver. I'd been meeting with a number of pastors and uh, just sharing with them about Freedom Session and this, this, this healing discipleship journey. And God spoke to me, there's about one out of eight times he spoke to me very, very clearly, and this is what he said. He, he said, Ken, it's no longer acceptable for my church to lead people to Christ through the church and then refer them to recovery ministries or outside counseling after which you disciple them. If you were ministering in an in impoverished country, your gospel, the good news, would have to include food, water, and the basics of hygiene, but you're not. You're ministering in North America where one of my people's greatest needs is for emotional healing. And I've been a pastor for 30 years. My wife and I have pastored for 30 years. And John 10, 10, Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and you might have it abundantly, but the experience of most Christians is not the abundant life. So what's wrong? It's not our teaching, it's not Jesus, but somehow we've defined a spiritual maturity track of knowledge that doesn't invite Jesus Christ into the broken areas of our lives. We teach people to turn your, maybe you've heard this if you've been around church, turn your life over to Jesus. Well, what does that mean? What does your life consist of? Well, a lot of times we've turned our eternal life over to Jesus. But my life also includes my failures, my hurts, my wounds, guilt, shame, and all those things. And no one's ever taught us how 
to invite Jesus into those broken areas of our lives. And as a result, we come to church and we think we're the only one. We look around at all the other people. They seem to be growing. They seem to be doing well. They seem to have that abundant life, but somehow something's wrong with me. But we're never going to tell anyone that because we think we're the only one. And how Freedom Session actually began originally, we had 40, we were just simply, years ago, it was 2001, 2002, we were simply preaching on what I'm guessing your pastor's staff preaches on the real issues of life, because most people aren't really concerned whether Jesus comes at the beginning or the end of the tribulation. I mean, that's important, but they really are concerned, how do I get through my life this week? How do I deal with my sexuality? How do I deal with my marriage? How do I deal with guilt, shame, all those kind of things? That's what, that's what people are really concerned about. So we were preaching on those things, and then people started phoning up and saying, yes, but how? You're preaching that I'm supposed to live free. We're all free in Christ. We have preached that we are free, but I'm not free. How do I deal with the shame, the guilt, the fear, anxiety, all those things? How do I do that? And so we had a waiting list of 40 people for counseling. And so we had, had a, we had a prayer ministry, we had inner healing ministry, all those things. But we've realized that to make uh, healing normative, we had to put it into the discipleship area, not the counseling area. To make it the most normative thing in the world. So Mountain Park Church, if you're going to attend for five years, of course I've been through Freedom Session. The question is, which year? And it's not the only program, it's part of the discipleship journey. But it's a critical piece. So healing discipleship, is, is that's that we just coined a term. Um, and Peter Scazzaro uh, wrote Emotional Healthy Spirituality. There's this one quote that really spoke to me. He says, spiritual maturity and emotional health are inseparable. Because emotions are really important. I want to speak to men just for a minute. You know, because uh, you know, women talk a lot more about their emotions. They're more comfortable with them. Maybe they understand them better or not. Maybe, probably not, but they think they do, right? <laughs> but, but regardless, right? But men, we've got to understand that emotion and motive are the same root word. Emotion drives everything, not logic. E emotions, for example, we can take any issue, right? We can take pornography, we can take food addiction, we can take shopping, we can take work. What drives us? It's emotion, it's not logic. Uh, that's what even drives us in ministry, it's emotion. It, it, emotion drives us, so, so healing discipleship is trying to make it normative. And that's so we were talking, you were talking about the church we were part of, so, and this, it was a large church, we had multi-sites. But we took over half, it was 6,500 people, we took over 3,000 people through Freedom Session in a five-year period. It just was the most normative thing you would do. We took all kinds of other great programs too, right? But that's what healing discipleship is. In a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, what was your I feel like we're kindred spirits here because we answer questions the same way. It's so good. I feel yeah, like you I feel stronger you right now. Because, but you said your 10 minutes just was, didn't mean anything. No, you said yeah. the same way. All right. Five. Yes. All right. So uh, follow up to that. Yeah. And this, uh, this is a question I wrestled with. A lot of you, okay, so you're hearing this, and a lot of you go right to Paul. Right. When he says, I'm a new creation. So then you go, why would I need to do any? I thought I was a new creation. Why Absolutely. would I need to focus on this stuff at all in my life? Didn't Jesus kind of already take care of all of right. this? So 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, which actually meant the world to me when I became a Christian. That's the way God sees us. The problem is that's not typically the way we see us. And every Christian, like another thing we do when we come to Christ, Lord, forgive me for all my sins. Which sins? All of them. Just, and we kind of get a, we ask for generic forgiveness, and we kind of get a generic freedom. 
But for most Christians, most people, there's three to five memories of things that have happened to me that I haven't kind of processed. And they're buried. And then for most Christians, there's also three to five experiences, things that I've actually done that I feel guilty for. And there's two kinds of guilt, true guilt and false guilt. False guilt is things done to me and told me it was your fault, like abuse or abandonment or you're a loser, right? You're a child and you told you, but you believe them because you're a child. True guilt is when you actually did something that you know you were wrong, but you just suppressed it. You ask to forgive, but it still bothers you. And Satan beats you up with it. So, so that's one reason. Um, the other reason is, let's take the Apostle Paul for a minute. I mean, he started out in his ministry. I'm the, I, w- I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was the best of the best. Then he be- as he matured, he became the least of the apostles in his eyes, and eventually the chief of sinners. Paul was not in denial. Paul killed Christians. Paul led people away from Christ, and yet he could say in Romans 8.1, therefore there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Can you say that? Because a lot of us have shame that, that has not yet been broken. We know it's true, but in our heart, we don't feel it's true. And when push comes to shove and the heat turns up, we always go back to what we believe in our hearts, not what we believe in our heads. So that's another reason. All right. Last one. Um, and then I'll, you can actually preach. Um, so around here, we've been using, especially this year, language that sort of the, the starting point for all of us, the, the greatest kind of call in our life is to be formed into the image of Christ. Right. Um, how does healing ministry, how does something like Freedom Session actually form us into the likeness of sure. the image of Christ? And I'm going to sit down and then sure. you can just continue on. Great. That's a big question. Um, probably, if I summarize in one thing, Jesus Christ was controlled by what? Only the Father. Only the Holy Spirit. Jesus was controlled by nothing but the Holy Spirit of God. A lot of us are controlled by other things, what people think of us, our fears, our failures, you know, um, shame. And so uh, healing in the discipleship journey take, gives you an opportunity to actually deal with some of those things so that we're controlled by nothing but the Holy Spirit of God. And it helps us process them so we can, we can feel the pain or whatever, but it no longer controls us. In other words, we don't obey our pain. We don't obey our fear. Like, even if we would just... Even if Christians were willing to feel fear, do you know how much power Satan would lose over us? I mean, some of us feel like fear is the ultimate worst thing that can happen, but fear exists. What would happen if we were willing to learn how, right? And so that's what a discipleship journey like Freedom Session does. It it gives people tools of how to. It's not just the what you should do, but also the how to. Tell a little story that I I tell in, in Freedom Session, I think somewhere. So in, I don't know what year it was, but I was playing hockey late at night and um, somehow during the game, I developed a condition called pneumomediastinum, which I'm sure all you realize is a, an airlock around your heart. That's all it means. So somehow the sack around my heart got punctured during the game. And so air was being pumped into this sack around my heart, and it put pressure on my heart. And as I was playing hockey, my heart, you know, pumping more blood. So it expands. We got air in here. I felt like I was having a heart attack. And it got more and more painful as I was playing. And I actually thought I was dying. There was no real, real risk. I actually thought I was dying. And for whatever reason, I didn't want to die in front of my teammates. So I went around the, the back of, of behind the bench and I passed out. And I woke up uh, in the ambulance. Uh, I probably was, you know, but I, I came, I was probably half conscious before that. I woke up in the ambulance. And as soon as I woke up, I thought I was dying. So I started hyperventilating, which probably put more air around the heart and more pain and pressure, and maybe I passed out because I was hyperventilating, maybe I passed out because of pain, I don't know, but I passed out again. 
And I woke up again, and this, this attendant in the ambulance was screaming at me to breathe, or telling me to breathe, but she was quite emphatic. And I think I passed out twice. Maybe I'm exaggerating. I don't know. It was a little bit hazy. And finally, I woke up, and I squeaked out somehow, how? And it dawned on her that, I, that this man does not know how to breathe when he's in pain. What Freedom Session does, or a journey like this, it, it helps people know how to do what Jesus asks us, right? It teaches us how to confess, how to deal with our past. It gives us the tools, how to deal with fear, how, how to you know, deal with, with shame, how, how to forgive, uh, how to make things right. It actually teaches us, gives you some of the tools. It's nothing really new. It's taking a lot of the tools that people in the body of Christ have created before. We put them into a package. We put a little bow on it and called Freedom Session, which starts on Wednesday, but you have to register by Tuesday to go to. So that's what Freedom Session is in a nutshell. So... Um, I moved to my message here. I'll tell you why we are here. Uh, your pastor shared what attracted us to your church is is that your 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 pastoral staff has the integrity, had the integrity, has the integrity to actually want to process this in their own lives before they introduce it to the congregation, and that's what attracted us to your congregation, and that's I think why God linked us to, and just even when we're worshiping with you, uh, yes, your pastors and us are kindred spirits, you can tell people just want to be authentic and want all that God has for them, so it's a privilege and honor to be with you uh, this morning and help you kick off uh, this journey, yeah. You don't know how rare that is, um, so it's good. Um, before I get started, I got two questions to ask you, they're, they're Freedom Session type questions. Um, what is it that you turn to or run to when life gets difficult? I mean, when stress, when, when the pressure heats up, marriage falls apart, or not doing well, or kids, you know, what is it that you turn to to escape pain or avoid conflict? What do you run to? Is it TV? Is it food? Is it a book? Is it gaming? Is it Facebook? Is it blaming other people? Is it pornography? Is it your hobbies? Work? What do you do to escape pain or avoid conflict? Just lock in your answer and text them to your pastors. <laughs> no, just, just lock it. What is it? And now the second question is, if you were no longer allowed to do that, in other words, when pressure or stress or fear or whatever comes up, if you were no longer allowed to run to alcohol, pornography, TV, work, ministry, blaming other people, people-pleasing, food, whatever it is you run to, if you were no longer allowed to escape pain or avoid conflict, what is it in your life you'd have to deal with? Because that is probably the area that the Holy Spirit wants to work in your life. In Freedom Session, we call what we run to is our drug of choice. It's, it's our way to numb pain, escape pain or avoid conflict, to suppress things. The problem is God knows they're there, Satan knows they're there. We can suppress them, but they'll eventually eat up. In, in each of your Bibles, those will hopefully uh, help you as we begin this uh, message here this morning. In each of your Bibles, somewhere in the middle, there's a section called the Proverbs. And Proverbs are timeless truths articulated in concise, memorable form so that we can memorize them. And they're, they're generally helpful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. They're great. In the back of our minds, there's another set of Proverbs, and this set of Proverbs is not inspired, it's not God-breathed, they're, they're more or less mom or dad-breathed, and they're not inspired, but they're generally good rules to live by. For example, cleanliness is next to 
Show me a verse of scripture to back that up. Anything worth doing is worth doing well. Early to bed, early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. If at first you don't succeed, if he who laughs last, laughs best or doesn't get the joke. And if it ain't broke, don't, but what if it is? Well, you fix it. And that's what we do with our washing machines and our lawnmowers and our, you know, technical toasters or whatever around the house. There's an area of our lives, however, we don't do so well at fixing, and that's the area of our relationships or our families. And there's a number of reasons why we don't work on fixing those. Number one would be, we don't really think they're broken, so why fix them? Secondly, another reason is if we know they're broken, relationships or families, whatever, we don't really know how we would fix them. Most of us, in fact, probably all of us, train better for our driver's license than we do for getting married, for example. And you might have some premarital counseling, but, but you don't have to take a test. And we don't train at all to have children. I mean, there's no, there's no mandatory training, which if you think about it, is absolutely bizarre. I remember when Bonnie and I brought our firstborn out of the hospital. He's 37 years old. His birthday was a couple days ago. I remember when we took our firstborn out of the hospital, I felt like I was stealing something. And I was thinking, are you serious? You're going to let us take this, this child out of here? Do you not know how much damage we could do to this child? You don't have to take any training. We haven't been trained well to deal with brokenness in our relationships. The third reason is we think that time will just fix things, or sadly, some of us think it's too late. Before we go any further, let's ask another question. How do you know when a relationship's broken? I mean, how do you know when a family's broken? What's the criteria for this family or relationship being broken and this one not being broken? What's the criteria for a church being broken or not broken or a ministry team or an office? How do you know? Let's go nail it into the family. And when I use the word family, if you, uh, we're talking family units. If you're single and you live alone, that's your family unit. And then you've got your network of friends. If you're a single parent, that's your family unit. If you're married and you've got your children living with you, that's your family unit. Or if you're, you know, empty nesters or whatever. So I'm using the word family as whoever you are in your, your general intimate relationships. Um, how do you know when a family's broken? If, if there's abuse somewhere down the line, would that render a family broken? What about an addiction? What about crippling debt? If there was a separation or a divorce? What about emotional divorce? You know what emotional divorce is? It's Christians who will never separate because they're Christians. But the marriage is dead and everyone knows it, except at church. Perpetual debt, pornography, too many conversations just ending in whatever, ships passing in the night, there was a pregnancy terminated, secrets, an affair, how do you know? If you're thinking about that, if you got your Bible or your phone, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to look at, because a lot of times we think about if things could just get back to the way they used to be, things would be healthy again. Right? If we could just go back, and the idea is the further we go back, if we could just go back 100 years, the family unit would be healthy again. If we could just go back 200 years, healthier. So the theory is the further back you go, the healthier things should be. So we're going to go right back in time to the very first family, the family of Adam and Eve. Theoretically, the healthiest family that ever existed. Uh, chapter 4, Canaan, it's, uh, yeah, chapter 4 of Genesis. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. 
And in the course of time, Cain brought an offering of the, of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions or of the best portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain, he did not have regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desires for you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to, his, to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then Lord, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And Cain says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord says, what have you done? Did you notice that Cain never took the time to answer God's question? Why are you so angry? When God asks a question, he's not looking for information. When God asks a question, he's giving us an opportunity to, to become accountable, an opportunity to learn something about ourselves which we might not know. Why are you so angry? Cain never took the time to answer the question. In fact, what Cain did is what you and I do a lot of times when we feel like we're angry. We look for someone that God's blessing or we look for someone else around and we take our anger out on the people around us exactly what, what uh, Cain did. Was Cain angry? Yes and no. Cain wasn't angry so much as Cain felt rejected. Cain felt rejected because his offering was not accepted by the Lord, but Abel's was, and he felt jealous, so he took his anger out on him. Had Cain, had Cain answered the question, why are you angry, he would have realized, I feel rejected, God, but he didn't. So my question to you is, why are you so angry? This is really important because, and this is really helpful for men, it's also helpful for women, but anger and fear feel identical. Did you know that? Anger and fear feel biologically identical. When we are angry or when we're afraid, our adrenal gland releases the adrenal hormone in our bloodstream. It takes blood from our brain and from our digestive system and puts it out to our muscles. That's why we don't think too well. That's why we get a knot in our stomach when we're angry. But beneath, beneath the anger, often we're afraid of being rejected. We're afraid of failure. We're afraid of exposure. Most, about 98% of the anger we feel is a cover-up. It's a secondary emotion. And it covers either fear or rejection. In this case, why was Cain so angry? He was afraid. He was afraid he wouldn't get accepted by God. He felt rejected. And we've got, we've got this little exercise somewhere in Freedom Session at the very beginning, and I'll give it to you right now. If the next time you're angry, sort of, I am angry at, and literally write it down. Take a pen and a paper and write down what you're angry about. This is important because men need to think their way into their emotions. Women need to think their way out of the emotions. Women often feel, I'm angry. everything's bothering me. No, not everything. One or two or three things is bothering you right now and you're putting all your emotional energy into that. What are you angry? I am angry at. And then, I am afraid that. What are you afraid of? And I feel rejected by then you're walking in truth. What would happen if you, the next argument when you're angry, you would actually write, write that down and say, I feel rejected. That's how I'm angry. I'm actually not angry. What would happen in your arguments? What would happen in my arguments? I don't always do that. It's easy to go to anger. Do you know that anger is more enjoyable to, fear, to feel sorry, than fear or rejection? I'm not saying it's fun to be angry, but it's less painful than rejection. Why are you so angry, Cain? He didn't answer the question said he did exactly what we do. In fact, we blame. Who are you blaming for your unhappiness? 
One of the t-shirts I remember, a favorite t-shirt, and I, I use this quote a lot, but it, it said, I, we were actually in a worship service, and I saw this guy stand up, and he had this shirt on that says, I didn't say it was your fault. I said, I'm going to blame you. <laughs> we love to blame people for our unhappiness. And I'm not saying they don't have a play in it, um, but if we'd be more honest, it's what I'm afraid of, what I'm rejected, how am I feeling rejected. Back to our story. Uh, one time I was preaching this message, and I said, had Cain answered those questions, Abel would still be alive today, which isn't actually true because that was a few thousand years ago. But, <laughs> but I can say if we would lead with the truth about how we're feeling rather than blaming you for my unhappiness, we would have a lot less problems in our relationships, marriages, churches, etc. Back to the story. Cain said to his brother Abel, um, spoke to his brother, when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And Cain said, I do not know him. I'm my brother's keeper. And the Lord says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from my hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord in his mercy put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Eden. You know what Cain's biggest concern was? I'll be driven from the presence of the Lord. My punishment is greater than I can bear. I'm going to have trouble with the ground, but today I'll be driven from your presence. Listen, have you ever sinned, screwed up, really blew it? And you feel like you've got to be good for three days before you can pray? You've got to be good for three days before the Lord will show his favor on you again? It's called the doctrine of penance. And it's not the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Listen, if I loved you enough to sacrifice my son for you, which I don't, but if I loved you enough to sacrifice my son for your sins, for your failures, what could you possibly do in three days to impress me than to accept that gift? See, there's a lot of people that think that when we screw up, we've got to run away. That's where Jesus wants to meet you the most. That's why he sent his son. Do you know that we don't have a sin problem? And, and sin, people don't like to talk about sin. Sin is because it sounds so negative. Sin is simply a term or a word that God used to describe our shortcomings. We all know we don't. It means to miss the mark, not quite get it perfect. That's all it means. I'm not minimizing it, but we don't have a sin problem. Jesus Christ has already paid the price for every sin, every mistake, every failure, every time you blew it. He's already paid the price for every time thing you've ever done, plus the sins you're going to commit on Tuesday. He's already paid the price for them. What we have is an acknowledgement of sin problem. We, that's all we have. We have to bring what's happened into the, into the light so that God can deal with it. That's what he wants. Why was he asking, Cain, what have you done? So Cain could acknowledge it so God could deal with it. That's what we have, but we keep hiding. We think we're the only ones we're not. And one of the reasons why you should sign up for Freedom Session or go if you've already signed up and you feel like everything's against you, that's because Satan does not want you to, Satan does not want to lose the ground by which he controls you. So of course you're going to have spiritual warfare. Of course all kinds of opposition is going to come because Satan does not want you to go. Same reason why some of you have a hard time getting to church. Satan does not want you to come here. Satan does not want us to worship. Because when we worship, the Holy Spirit convicts us of things that are wrong in our lives so that we can confess them so that he can fill us again. Satan does not want that. 
If there's ever a place God wants to meet you, it's in your pain. That's why he sent Jesus. Sometimes when I'm reading scripture, I feel like I've been watching a movie where someone's fast-forwarded a few scenes and there's, there's documents, there's, there's information that's not recorded in this story that if we knew it, it would just, it would just help make sense of it. And I think that there's one um, gap or there's one fast-forward at the end of verse 17 which says, Then the Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. And I would suggest that if Scripture continued to be recorded at that point, we would read something like this. And a few days later, when Adam was walking alone in the field, he came upon the dead body of his son Abel, and he wept. And when he realized he lost two sons that day, he wept even more. The other gap in this story I'd suggest happens in the middle of verse 2. Back to the story, Cain, uh, sorry, Eve had just given birth, and it says, and again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. Have you ever seen baby boys keep sheep and work the ground? No, you haven't. There, there's a gap in that story. There, there's about 15 years of, of celebrations, of birthday parties, of campouts, of celebrating accomplishments like, like Cain's, Cain's first backflip off the local waterfall or, or, or Abel's first solo giraffe ride. There, there, were, there were harvest seasons. There were scenes of Eve uh, teaching Abel how to, 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 set, to set a broken leg of, a, of an animal or bring a calf into the world. There were, there were scenes, there were there were family altars, not the kind that we have today when you read a little scripture, but literal altars where Adam and Eve would, would explain with tears in their eyes to the boys why they had to kill the little lamb they'd been taking care of for the last seven days. It's because mom and I sinned, boys. Mom and I sinned, and there's a consequence. Both Adam and Eve knew they were forgiven for their sin, but, but sin affects other people. And then there was those there's non-erasable mommy and daddy moments when they checked, when Adam and Eve checked in on the boys in the treehouse and they're sleeping out there and they're sharing the same blanket, sharing the same pillow because Abel broke the, pil the other pillow in the pillow fight that Eve told them not to have. My point is these boys were not enemies. They were pals. They were soulmates. And nothing in the world could have compared, could prepared Adam for picking up the dead body of his son Abel. And I know we're just speculating, but I also would say a couple days before verse 17, Adam would never have described his family as broken. Nothing that would ever amount to this. And I'd also suggest that it came as a complete surprise, and with that surprise, a lot of regret. I think Adam would have done anything to go back and pay a little bit more attention to his boys. I think he would have done something or said something to address the conflict between the two boys. He noticed he just didn't say anything. I suggest that he would have prayed more with his boys and I think he would have prayed more for his boys. Maybe he would have checked in on Cain, he would have taken him out for breakfast, or maybe he would have confronted Abel on his air of superiority when his sacrifice was accepted and Cain's wasn't. Maybe he would have said, Abel, give your brother a good deal, you know, swap him some cattle for some, some grain so his offering can be accepted as well. He noticed he just didn't say anything. And I know, again, we're speculating, but I also know the realization that one's family or life is broken when it finally becomes apparent comes as a complete surprise to a lot of us. In fact, there's some of you here today, sadly, that in five years, your marriage will fall apart or one of your children will go AWOL and you'll wish anything, you could rewind the tape two or three years. 
So wouldn't it be a good idea if, if we would train ourselves to rather than ask the question, is my family broken? Is the worship team broken? Is the children's ministry? Is the church broken? Are my relationships broken? Wouldn't it be a good idea if we stopped asking the question, is it broken? And just look as, where is there any brokenness in our relationships and begin addressing it then at the beginning? You know, and, and I'm not saying that your family's broken. I'm, there's probably a lot of good things happening, but there's brokenness within our relationships, within our families that we need to address. I mean, what's the chance, what's the chance, you know, I was thinking about what is marriage, actually, when we were worshiping, what is marriage? It's two people trying to walk along the Lordship of Christ and interweave their lives together. What's the chance of there being no brokenness in the relationship with Bonnie and I? Almost none. You know, there's the analogy, you take two half cups of water and you bring them together in marriage. Well, what do you get? You don't get two full cups of water. You get two half cups of water that are just together. What's the chance that we would raise children where there's no brokenness? Almost none. They pick up some of our brokenness, plus they come up with some all on their own. Um, I remember one of, the, one of the brilliant things we did, maybe you can use this, we had a we had, we had boy, girl, boy, and the two oldest, they weren't getting along, and they were really not getting along for a long time, for, for a while, and they love each other now, and they loved each other then, in theory. Um, but one day, we actually, we took them out, and we dropped them off at a restaurant, and I gave the daughter 20 bucks or whatever, and I just dropped them off at a restaurant, and they had to talk for half an hour. I have no idea what they talked to, but, but of course there's brokenness, so you gotta find ways to get them to talk. Of course there's gonna be brokenness, and that's really the first step. Step one, if we wanna tr look at where's the brokenness and actually become healthy, acknowledge the fact that brokenness exists within my relationships. The question we need to ask is, where are they broken? The second step would be to accept the responsibility for the brokenness I contribute. And that's why we've got these little cards. So I just want you to pick up these cards here. This is a defects of character card. And the reason why they're, they're on all the pews, just why, you know, so, so your church printed them off and they put them on all the, all the chairs, sorry. The reason for that is if you just hand them out, a lot of times a couple will take one between the two of them. And we found over the years that women are generally very open to looking at their defects of character. And we also found that men are also open for the women to look at their defects of character. <laughs> so we decided you could each have one. So this is actually not to do right now, but this is actually a homework assignment that we want you to do. And we want you to look at this and, and just, if you would go over this and put a check mark, which three areas would you acknowledge are part of your life? Which are the three most prevalent in your life? This is a homework, an exercise that we'd like you to do. And then what we'd like you to do is you can either share that if you're married or if you've got a boyfriend or a girlfriend or you've got children or whatever it is, you got, you, you're, you're living with a couple of roommates, just share them with each other. Say, you know, what would you say uh, would be one of my defects of character? And the way you word that is this, because often people around you are a mirror. They know what your defects of character are better, better than you are. Say something like, if I was going to work on only one of these areas this next year, which would be the most meaningful to you that I would work on? Now, some people might not answer that question. You know why? Because you're not safe. Because they're afraid, they're afraid you're going to lash out. This is a great exercise for pastoral teams to do. This is a great exercise for families to do. And actually acknowledge, and if family, if you're a dad, you go first. Say, I, because one of my, we, we actually did this once. We took our family out for, for lunch. I think I'd preached on this message and they happened to all be there. They were all adults and we, we took this out. And, and one of the things that is, affects our, my family is my pride. I know that pride is a defective character in my life. I've worked on that over the years. It's probably still an area. But how has my pride affected my family? 
You know what you do when you, when, you, when you acknowledge your own? You give other people permission to also have defects of character, which they have. And you give people permission. You create a culture in which it's okay to acknowledge and take responsibility for the areas of brokenness that I contribute. However, what we don't want to do is sit there and navel gaze. Just because I acknowledge it doesn't mean I, I need people around me that love me enough to expect more of me, to expect my best, to be growing in that area. And that's why it's a good idea. If, if, if I was just going to work on one of these areas, what would, what would you prefer it would be? Um, it's, it's actually, for those of you that have businesses, if you're a boss or, uh, or whatever, especially if you're a boss, you're a position of authority, grab a few of these extra ones. They don't even, they're not even religious, uh, really. So just bring them to your staff and pass them out and say, uh, you know, if I was going to work on just one of these areas this next year, what would it be? And then if you invite those same people to, say, if you have a Christmas outreach or whatever your church does, there's a, probably a 50% chance, more likely chance they'd come. Because isn't one of the, the world's critiques on Christians that we think we're perfect, we give the impression we're perfect? You know, our bumper stickers you know, that say, you know, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven as we drive by at 80 miles an hour. Those aren't helpful outreach uh, symbols, right? But it's just the being authentic. So that's be your homework assignment. Literally take that, and I'll give you the, the, the graduated assignment of that. Let's suppose, uh, and by the way, if someone does have the courage to share with you what would be helpful for, for you to work on, say thank you. Don't try to defend it. It's also helpful that, that, that we try to work on, and just pick one. If you're going to work on one of these areas, pick one area and work on it for three months. Just one area. And after that, if you still haven't mastered it, try to keep working on it, but just pick one area and then that will become more intuitive for you over time. And then pick another area. But so that is your, your homework. That is accepting responsibility for the brokenness I contribute. And the other thing that happens is, is when you acknowledge some of your own failures and flaws, you become a whole lot more graceful for the people in your life. And if you struggle with pride, like how do you become humble? You don't just wake up, I'm gonna be humble today. The way to become humble is to become more honest, or that's probably the most practical way. The other way is fasting, but that's very painful. I'm not saying it's a bad idea, but fasting will also make you humble very quickly. But being honest about yourself, and then you can create a dynamic uh, that's very attractive. So people that are authentic, but we're not going to stay here. We're broken, we're authentic, but we're not going to stay here. The third step would be to actually speak into the brokenness. Remember, we're looking at what would happen if we would take responsibility to look at where things are broken and actually do something about them. So the first would be to acknowledge the brokenness exists. Secondly, acknowledge the part that I contribute. The third would be to actually speak into the brokenness of our families or relationships. If you want it in proverbial form, here it is. When in doubt, lean into what is broken and speak. Where do I get that? Well, when God encounters tension or brokenness, what does he do? In scripture, what does he do? He always tries to bring order. He always speaks into it. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and he says, what have you done? Um, he doesn't retreat. Adam, uh, sorry, God doesn't, and Adam and Eve sinned. God does not retreat and say, oh, what have I done? I blew it, you know, etc. I should never have done that. He leans into what is broken and speak. Adam, what have you done? Where are you? He's actually said. Adam says, I'm hiding. He says, why? Did someone, did you eat of the tree you weren't supposed to? 
Who told you you were naked? He leans into it. Cain sins, kills his brother. Cain, what have you done? In Genesis chapter 11, God's people were, were, were creating the Tower of Babel. And uh, God says, let us go down and confuse their language. He speaks into it. He didn't want them to do that. All through the Old Testament, God sends prophets with, with pleading, come now, let us reason together. Those of your sins be as scarlet. They'll be white as snow. He continues to send his prophets. Whenever God sees brokenness, he leans into and speaks. The theme continues in the New Testament. Jesus did the same thing. In Luke chapter 5 verse 22, Jesus had healed a man, but he healed him on the wrong day, technically. So the religious people were upset about that. And Jesus says, why are you thinking these evil things in your hearts? When Jesus would teach, his typical strategy was to teach in story form to the illiterate. And then the religious hypocrites would show up. He would wrap up that teaching and he would aim the next teaching at the hypocrisy of the Pharisees' hearts, which eventually got him killed. Wouldn't Jesus and God have been better off to just remain silent? Yes, but the people wouldn't have been. We wouldn't have been. Wouldn't we be better off in the face of conflict or stress or tension, these brokenness, these fracture points, to go in our garage and work on our motorcycle or go to, you know, whatever it is we turn to to escape pain or avoid conflict, to work, to ministry, to TV, to food, whatever it is we turn to, to shopping, to reading, to escape. Wouldn't we be better off? Well, we think we would but I can guarantee you the people wouldn't be. Your relationships, the people that you care most about wouldn't be. How, does, how did Adam typically respond? Genesis chapter three, how did Adam, Adam how, how do you and I, like we can blame Adam, but it's kind of you and I. How do we typically respond? Let's look at Adam and Eve. So, so the story, you know the story, God told them you can eat of anything, just one tree. Don't eat of that one tree. So Satan tempts uh, Satan comes and, and tempts Eve. The serpent said to the woman, "You and Eve says, no, we, we can't eat of this, this tree or else we're going to die. And the serpent, Satan, speaking through the serpent, says to the woman, you won't surely die for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and even, so, evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and there was delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You know, good fig leaves would be in Ontario in January. That's their attempt at hiding. And God says, what have you done? What, what did Adam say? It's the woman. I didn't do anything. <laughs> it's the woman. The woman, she was munching on the fruit. I just had a little bite. First he blames the woman, then he actually blames God. It's the woman you gave me. I was doing pretty good here. The house is a little bit messy, but generally I was good as the woman you gave me. He blames. He hid. Found his way to hide away from God rather than run into it. You ever thought about what Adam's first sin was? It wasn't being deceived. Adam wasn't deceived. Eve was deceived. Adam knew exactly what he was doing when he ate. It wasn't eating of the tree. That, that came secondly. Adam's first sin was silence. A guy by the name of Larry Crabb wrote a whole book called The Silence of Adam. Adam was silent about the things that mattered most to God and most to Satan. And why do I put those two things together? Because whatever matters to God matters to Satan. Because understand this, Satan hates God. So whatever God puts as the apple of his eye, which happens to be you, that will matter to Satan. Your purity matters to God, to Satan because it matters to God. Your marriage matters to Satan because it matters to God. Your money matters to Satan because it matters to God. Your children matter to Satan because it matters to God. Your passivity 
matters to Satan because it matters to God or your, input, uh, your willingness to confront things. All these things matter to Satan because they matter to God. How could Adam be silent in the face of what mattered most to Satan and most to God, which was his obedience? How could he do it? What a wimp. The same way you and I do it. We are passive. We are quiet about what matters most to Satan and most to God. And so we run, we hide. We hide with our fig leaves. We hide with other things. We hide with blaming like Cain did, however we do it. We hide by our character defects. And we think things will just get better. And some of us have been hiding too long. I'll tell you, it is, uh, I remember in, in uh, Bible college, I was uh, being instructed by a guy named Marv Penner. And I remember he mentioned this statement once. He says, you might have a good marriage, but do you have a strong marriage? You may have good relationships, you have strong relationships. You can have good relationships by just skimming things over. We think they're good. They're just easy. But it's not necessarily strong. And somehow we have to become authentic with what's going on in our lives, what's going on in our hearts, with some of the behaviors, the ways we hide. Like, let, let's just take, and, I, and I, I'm not minimizing it. Let's just take something for a minute. Let's take something that we beat up men on a lot, and, and women. We talk, take pornography for a minute. Why does a man or a woman turn to pornography? It's escape. The motives, John Eldridge said, pornography gives men all the feelings of being male without the responsibility. And it's not just a male thing. 25, 40% of women, especially if you add the female forms of pornography, they'll turn to romance novels, soap operas, whatever. They'll turn to, it's escape. Why do people, there's some people that turn to shopping and actually because they feel better. Their house could be a disaster, their relationships are a disaster, but they go shopping, they buy things so they feel better. Same reason why, why good Christian people turn to alcohol or drugs or whatever it is. Some turn to ministry because that's where I get my strokes. And we don't address, and I'm not saying some of these things aren't bad. Some turn to our hobbies, our sports and things. We do them to escape rather than what's really important. And then when it all falls apart, it's too late. We think it's too late. And what God's wanting us to do is address these things, lean into what is broken and speak. But how do we do that? Because there's ways to do it. So let me just jump just briefly on that. How do you actually do this? How do you actually lean into what is broken and speak? First step would probably be to begin dealing with brokenness in your own life. And that's why one of you, your church is offering a, a program like Freedom Session to give you an opportunity, a journey to do this. But let's give it to you five A's. Uh, the first one is accept responsibility to move into the brokenness. That's important because if you're going to do this, accept responsibility. You might think it's, it's their turn. They should be responding. They should, they should step in first. It's not your fault. Well, the Bible in Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins against you, you go show him his fault. So if someone, if your pastor sins against me or offends me, I'm actually responsible for God to go talk to him, show him his fault, talk about it so that we can resolve it. Secondly, let's take the other one. Let's suppose he has something against me. Well, I'm thinking then he should come to me. Well, probably he should. But Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 says, if you are in church, you're worshiping, and they're at the altar, they're at the altar, when you're about to give gift, whether it's worship or an actual monetary gift, you're about to give me a gift, and there you realize that your brother or sister has something against you. Stop. Leave your gift. Forget your fake worship. Forget your gift. Forget all you're doing for me. Someone has something against you. You go to them. First make it right with your brother and sister if you can. Then come back and worship me. Some of us live under the illusion that I can be right with God and wrong with you. You can't. Now, it is true that not all relationships will resolve. That's true. But the Bible, Romans 12, 18 says, if it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with all men. A lot of time, and it's not always possible. 
But can you say, as far as possible, I've done what I can. So the first would be to accept responsibility that it's on me to step into. If I, and, and it's also, the, the spiritually mature should always, more, the, the, the more spiritually mature you are, the more you should be to initiate. By the way, I just want to go back to one thing that I, that I didn't address. It's interesting that technically Eve sinned first, right? And God confronted Adam. And there's a hierarchy of responsibility. I'm not talking a hierarchy of quality, of intelligence, or ability. I'm talking there's a hierarchy of, of responsibility that God is going to hold some of us men accountable for. And one of the areas that us men should lead in is in the area of men, uh, emotional and relational healing. It's one of the areas we should lead in. This is not something we leave to our wives. You know, if you think our marriage is wrong, you go get fixed. This is something that we should take some responsibility and we should lead. Now, it's hard. Men, we're not necessarily better leaders and women, we're not necessarily better leaders. That's true. But God's put, and, and Eve was responsible for her sin. But I'm also uh, responsible for the condition of my family. And it's not an easy load to carry. That's one of the reasons, men, we need other men in our corners to help us become the men we want to be. And again, this is not an infomercial from Freedom Session. Your church is already doing it. you got 75 people signed up. Uh, you only got room for another 25 people or whatever. So it's not an infomercial, but I'm saying, guys, work hard. If you join, if you start this, guys, you last. You last through it. Don't quit when it gets tough. And you lead in this area as that we're going to become the men that God wants us to be. And men, you become protectors of society. Let's just take the purity thing, for example. A number of years ago, I was asked to speak to athletes in action, some of these high-quality athletes on, uh, I can't remember the term, but it was to, uh, just basically to break the, the impurity thing because um, athletes have a lot of temptations that, that you and I wouldn't have. There's women falling at their feet because they're athletes and there's the pornography thing, all those things. Um, so I talked to them and I thought, how am I going to move these athletes who make way more than I am, who are way bigger than I am, more attractive than I am, more popular, how am I going to move these people to give their lives for purity? And it, helped me, it, it dawned on me to help them to change their identity from athletes to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ and leverage their celebrity status to help other young men uh, develop purity. And the men that caught that, because no man's gonna give his life to be an athlete. Like, yeah, it's great, it's temporary. But to be an ambassador and to leverage whatever God's given you for the purity of the young boys growing up and they get something, they got it. So men, what I'm asking you to do is realize that God's called you to be a leader. This is an area we need to lead. Not just, don't give your life to not look at pornography. Give your life to protect the women in our society. The grandmothers, the daughters, the cousins, the wives. And lead in these areas. Not just that area, but just lead in, lead in some of these other areas. And women need to see us men take that, that role. Not surrender. And this does not minimize your role, women, as, as leaders, as inputters in society. I, I, just, just so you know that. All right, um, ask for number two. So that's accept responsibility. I'll go through these quickly. Ask for permission. This is also how, to, how you raise adult children. We can't just speak into our kids' lives. We have to say, hey, I've noticed something. Do you mind if I share it with you? If they say no, that means the relationship is not strong enough for me to share it. So I gotta build the relationship. So if you're going to speak into brokenness, ask for permission. I'm noticing something. Do you mind if I share it with you? Okay, so ask for permission. Third would be to acknowledge your own struggle with it. Acknowledge your own struggle with, with the issue. And that's to say, yeah, because a lot of times I can see in you what I know is in my life as well. In fact, it is so easy for me to pinpoint other people who are pride, prideful and arrogant because I know that. I am prideful and arrogant. 
It's so easy for someone that's, that's always blaming other people to find someone that's blaming people. It's so easy that it's a people pleaser to identify people pleasers. My point is, acknowledge that you struggle with, your, with the issue yourself. Say, I know I struggle with this wealth, but I'm seeing it. It's, it's hurting our relationship. Can I share it with you? There's a, now, some of us won't do that until we're perfect. Or, or sometimes the other thing happens. Someone wants to share something with you, and you say, you do the same thing. Well, that might be true, but isn't it irrelevant? Like, I use this example often. Let's suppose, um, you know, your pastor says, you know, you know Ken, you know, when, you, when you preach, you spit, you know? And I say, well, you do the same thing. Does that make the people in the front row any drier? <laughs> right? It doesn't. So be careful. And I do, I do this too. Sometimes I say, well, you do the same thing. You know why I'm doing that? Because I don't want to face what they're saying. But it might be true. But I say, you do the same thing. You know what I'm saying? Until you're Mr. or Mrs. Jesus, don't speak to me about my flaws. And sometimes people even quote, you know, Luke, uh, Luke, uh, Luke 6. Yeah, Luke 6, 42 says, why do you see the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye when you can't see the log? Okay, so we think, well, I can't speak. You know, if you're waiting until you're perfect to speak in another person's life, it'll never happen. And, and uh, what, what we don't do is follow up that passage. What Jesus says there is first, first, deal with the log in your own eye so that you can see clearly enough to deal with the speck in your brother's eye. Your brother needs someone to help him get the speck out of their eye. So just deal with the logs first so that you can help. You and I need each other. We don't want each other to speak into these areas of our lives. You and I actually need each other to help us become the people that Christ wants us to be. Your pastor asks us, how does freedom session or, or, or just community, authentic community, help us to become more like Christ? It helps us reveal the flaws, the areas that Jesus wants to work on in our lives. And then it also brings the accountability in place for me to become that person. So acknowledge your own struggle with the issue. The next A is simply address it. We can do all the others, but actually if we cross the line. And you might do it poorly. You might begin to address tension and conflict poorly. My mentor used to say, everything you learn to do, you learn by doing poorly. That's how you learn to walk. That's how you learn to talk. You're going to maybe learn how to address conflict poorly. So just acknowledge that. I'm not very good at this. I don't know how to have this conversation. But this is a concern. And begin leaning into it. And lastly, allow the Holy Spirit to bring the results. Allow the Holy Spirit to bring results. You're not actually responsible to resolve any conflict. You're responsible, if it's possible, as far as depends on me. Deal with the brokenness of my own heart. Bring it up. Try and resolve it. Leave the results to the Holy Spirit. To close, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is actually in this story. It's Genesis 4, verse 25. It says, Adam lay with his wife again. She gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another son in the place of Abel. If there was ever a family that could have called it quits, wouldn't it have been Adam and Eve? I can't think of anything more painful than burying a child, and some of you have probably done that, and I'm sorry. But more painful than that would be burying the child that your other child has killed. If there was ever a family that could have called it quits, it would be that one. So my point is, never let your mistakes of your past take you out of God's plan for your future. In other words, it's never too late. I remember a man asked me once, he got thrown out of his house by his wife, he says, can you help me, can you help me put my marriage back together? And I said, no. I said, I can help you become a kind of man that your wife wouldn't be stupid to bring back, but I can't necessarily. So my point is, it gave him a vision his vision was not to put his marriage back together, but become the kind of man that his wife could trust if she chose to. Never underestimate the power. Maybe, maybe your family is up and raised. Never underestimate the power 
of a 73-year-old man or woman writing a letter to his adult children who no longer walk with the Lord and saying, I realize that I was too hard on you. I'm starting to realize how that might have affected our relationship. I want you to know I'm sorry. I want you to know I'm trying to grow. And I'd love to talk about it if you want. Never underestimate the power of you trying to make things right. Do you know the Bible never asks us, never instructs us to ask someone else to forgive us? I'm not saying it's wrong. But when, when I've hurt someone else, the Bible doesn't say ask them to forgive you. It says make it right. In fact, in the Bible, if you, if you stole money, you're supposed to give it back plus a fifth. Otherwise, it's just a no interest free loan. So God actually asks us to make things right. And there's something that a lot of us can do to try and make things right. But my point is, even if it's all or not, God has a plan A for your life from this point on. And you might need your pastoral staff, community, other people around you, but don't let Satan take you out of God's plan for your future because of the mistakes of the past. And what your church is implementing this week is just one tool to help us deal with those things so Satan can't control us. I want to simply end by beginning a prayer and let your pastor um, conclude the prayer and lead as he feels. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that when you had scripture written, you didn't sugarcoat the stories and that you left in these stories of brokenness to give us hope because you, you stepped in and you gave Adam and Eve clothing and coverings that were far superior than their fig leaves. You step in, you would have stepped in for Cain. You stepped in, Lord, for, for all of us. You do step in. And I thank you for this church that's creating an, an atmosphere, an environment where you can heal because we're going to be honest, where you can set free because we're going to bring to you and invite you to bring your good news and your message, your hope, your power, your words into the broken areas of our lives and so that we become attractive to the world. Lord, we know there's a lot of brokenness. We know there's a lot of good here. But we also want to bring to you our brokenness today and ask you to give us the courage to deal with these things and give, bring them both the healing so that we can live free from them above the, the guilt, the shame, the hurts, the wounds, the lies we've believed so we can be controlled like Jesus by nothing save your spirit. And so Jesus, um, what we want is not just a superficial religious practice that we bring into our lives once a week. We want to be people who have experienced the very real healing, transformative, bondage-breaking, power-filled reality of the kingdom of God in our lives for the sake of the world around us, for the sake of our families and for the sake of those in our work environment, for the sake of our cities and our streets that are filled with broken people who are turning to anything they can get their hands on to bring relief and restoration. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that in just even in these moments, that you would speak to each person specifically and remind them that you have the power and the ability and the capacity to restore and to heal any brokenness any shame, any guilt, everything that has um, disfigured our past, 
and are present. Jesus, we're not asking that you take that stuff away. We're asking that you redeem it, that you take everything the enemy has meant for evil and that you turn it into good, that you speak a better word over our pain and our wounding, our trauma, our brokenness, our the marriages that are here right now that are on the, the brink of separation and disaster. For those who are here right now completely bound in habitual sin with no hope to ever walk in freedom, we ask, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you that you would supernaturally plant in each person's heart, in their spirit, in their mind, in their imagination, um, hope because of what Jesus can do. And we ask, Father, that you would give us wisdom in how to walk these things out, how to be the kind of church that goes beyond the superficial and into the real stuff of life together, how to break free of the bondage of like the church as an organization and into the church's family. Thank you, Jesus, especially today on Thanksgiving. I thank you that you did come to destroy the work of the devil and you did. You hold the keys of life. Father, I pray that as we walk out of here, that you would call us up, that you would stir us into a greater measure of faithfulness to you. I pray that you would give courage to men right now, courage to men to actually step up and be the kind of men that you're calling us to be. to not ignore, to not go silent, but to actually step in and to begin uh, to press into the, the kingdom of Jesus, bringing life and freedom to us emotionally. And so Jesus, we ask for your leadership, even as we launch Freedom Session, we don't really know what we're doing and we need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your wisdom. We pray your blessing on Ken and Bonnie and their ministry. We ask that you would um, give them, increase their capacity to steward your healing and restorative presence. Father, I pray that you would give them favor. Um, I pray for their children and their families. That you would guard them from the assignments of the enemy, that you would uh, hold them, God, as they walk on these front lines. We love you, Jesus. We're thankful for you and everything you've done that we don't deserve. Amen. Amen.